the good news about my style of preaching is it's usually pretty easy to figure out how to organize the main part of the sermon. It's just how do you organize what the passage says and then do some application. The illustration is often, the opening illustration is often the harder part. Some weeks it just comes really quick. Some weeks it's like wrenching it out with pliers. That was the case this week. So it was not till Thursday that I figured out how I wanted to start it. That's why we didn't, I didn't even bother to talk to Mark about the, the opening discussion because um, everything was already ready to roll for the service. Uh, but now the good news is, everyone, if you weren't already, you're familiar with the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Uh, it's a song that was made famous in America as the altar call for Billy Graham Crusades. And so here it's come to be associated a lot of times with that initial decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Uh, but the history of this song is actually quite a bit different. Uh, it is describing the incredible devotion of one man for his Savior, and what it relates is his testimony as he was committed and embodying Christ in front of a murderous mob. The song's history actually goes back to India in the 1880s. Uh, at that time, uh, God had raised up a lot of missionaries from Wales, and they had all gone to India. I don't know they all went, but a lot of them went to India, and and India was a very, very hard place for Christianity. North India in particular was hostile. Dozens of the missionaries had been martyred. And the words of this song are actually recording the final words of the first Indian convert in a particular village in the North Indian province of Assam. In this village, a long-suffering missionary had finally seen his first converts to Christianity as a husband, a wife, and two children. The missionary, when he left the village to go to other villages sharing the gospel, the leaders of that village decided to make an example of this convert. They threatened to kill his wife and children if he didn't renounce Jesus Christ. Well, the man replied, I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. He refused and archers executed his children. He's given a second chance to renounce Jesus, and he responded, The world can be behind me, but the cross is still before me. And his wife was executed. He was given one final chance to turn his back on the Jesus who had cost him, his family, and his final words were sung, Though no one is here to go with me, still I will follow Jesus. When the missionary returned to this village sometime later, he discovered that revival had broken out. Because starting with the chief, who had ordered the whole execution, but desperately needed to know why a man would be willing to make a sacrifice like this, from the chief on down, many people in the village had come to accept Jesus Christ. And so because of this man's commitment and his willingness to embody Christ, even unto death, many others had found eternal life. In Jesus Christ. There is an enormous gospel power that is released when people have truly, wholeheartedly, fully committed and embraced Jesus Christ and are willing to live for Him and even if necessary, die for Him. Now, I'm not saying that I expect too many of us to be martyred here, but we are each called, every one of us, to genuinely embrace, explain, and embody Christ as God works to transform our church into his lighthouse, to shine the light of Jesus Christ into every dark corner of our community. 
This is, as many of you know, our newly adopted 2020 vision for the church, to be a lighthouse for Christ at the corner of Clipper and Mariner, right, the streets right here, that the members of the community of faith are living the Great Commandment, really living the Great Commandment and fulfilling the Great Commission as true disciples of our Lord and Savior. That without compromising the truth inherent in God's holy word, we are presenting his grace through our words and deeds. That our worship exalts him and our our ministry edifies and glorifies him. And our outreach prepares others to meet him. And that most of all, our faith is being demonstrated through an unrelenting commitment to prayer that is driven by a fervent hunger to see God's will done in this area. This is a vision for transformation that is beyond our capability as an organization of human beings. We need God to provide the power and the resources to make this a reality. We are confident that this is his will for our church, that he will provide, but we need to understand we are reliant on him. But nonetheless, there are many things that we need to be doing along the way to be cooperating with his work. And so I am pleased to report that the initial steps of the vision implementation process, the first small steps actually began last Monday, just three days after the adoption of the vision. Our plan is not to adopt a vision, have a big party, and then take a nap for a few months as it gathers dust. We are moving out. The vision report recommended the establishment of a vision coordination team to pray, plan, coach, and coordinate the work of the various teams who will implement this vision. That coordination team is reasonably well-defined. It includes ministerial staff, deacon leadership, and some others. And and the advantage is that many of these people actually exist and we know who they are. So we have a nucleus that's able to meet together. So we actually held the first meeting last week. The membership is going to change substantially over the next few months. That's the nature when you start an organization that relies on other organizations that don't exist yet. So we know that as the pillar teams form around welcoming in, building up, and reaching out. We know that some of the membership is going to change because those teams will decide for themselves who will represent them in the VCT. But in the meantime, we have started to pray and to discuss the next steps to bring all these structures into existence. And the plan is really to meet weekly and then very soon to start seeking volunteers, to making it clear how you can get involved in making this vision a reality to begin by forming the core pillar teams and also to be meeting with our existing councils and committees and ministries to help them align to the vision. So it's going to be a very busy summer here at Lake Ridge, right? We all wanted to kind of go into summer mode and it is hot enough for summer mode, but please be praying for us, for our church and for the implementation of the vision. I uh, expect that we will be seeing some first fruits of this very, very quickly. Next week, I'm going to be talking about how to get involved, find your place in this vision, because I want to be 100% clear, Lake Ridge, both the church and the community, are not going to be transformed because 12 people wrote a nice paper that has a high production quality. It's not going to be transformed because some coordination team gets together and prays and talks a lot. Transformation will happen as God's Spirit works through every single person in our community of faith. Each and every one of us, I'm going to talk about this a lot more next week, each and every one of us has a place in this vision that we have been called to, that has been prepared for us, 
and that goes beyond our, uh, our personal need to be an, an obligation to be welcoming people in, being built up ourselves, and to be reaching out. Now, this vision is being built on three pillars. We've been talking over the last several weeks about them. This series is wrapping up next week. Uh, well, we've talked about welcoming in. We've talked about building up what they mean, what they're going to look like a little bit. We begin to, to get that understanding. And last week, we started talking about reaching out. All right, and reaching out is all about the E word, evangelism. Kind of scary for many people. But it does not have to be as scary as it sounds because you read the vision as you understand that it's really all about three other E words. E words that any Christian can do. It's about embracing Christ, explaining Christ, and embodying Christ. That sounds a lot easier, right? We can do those things. As a reminder, reaching out, and last week we had cards. If you didn't get a card, just if you go through the doors, on the right on the table, there's a table that's got the collector card that goes with each of the three pillars, welcoming in, building up, and reaching out. Right? Reaching out says that we are a community of faith in which every disciple is compelled by their love of Christ and nothing else, our love of Christ, to share the good news indiscriminately. Our outreach demonstrates our love for all our neighbors while including opportunities for each believer to engage every segment of society for the sake of transforming lives through that good news. Now, reaching out and the way we set out to do it is something that is commanded by Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives a command that's very famous that exemplifies really our whole endeavor as a church to become God's lighthouse. It's a command that's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus speaks often about light. In fact, the whole Bible speaks a lot about light. But he is seldom as direct as he is here in this passage. And we need to understand that to anyone who was alive 2,000 years ago, light was a very, very vivid powerful illustration, because when it was nighttime in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago, it was really, really dark. So the concept of light is something that would have been tremendously valuable, tremendously appreciated, and well understood in a way that we in Northern Virginia simply cannot grasp because it's never really dark here. I could be out walking the dog at 5 o'clock in the morning. It's not dark. It is never dark in this area. And so we need to understand that's the kind of darkness and the kind of light that we are being called to. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to illuminate the dark world around us. So as we consider all the things we've been talking about in recent weeks with the new church vision, it is becoming increasingly clear that we become God's lighthouse when we embrace Christ, explain Christ, and embody Christ. Now, as we look at this particular passage this morning, there are three truths that I want to discuss. First is that we are the light of the world. 
and must embrace it. Just think about this first part of verse 14. You are the light of the world. Now, there is an incredible truth in here that I think we often don't give much thought to. I think this is one of those passages that we just kind of let roll off our mind without really processing. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm the light of the world. But this is, there's just an unbelievable truth in here because Jesus isn't saying, I'm the light of the world, go reflect my light. Now, he is the light of the world. But that's not what he's saying here. He is saying that you, it's a plural in the language here, you, my followers, then and today, are the light of the world. The world tells us we're a lot of things. It might say that we're accidents, mistakes, nuisances, inconveniences, or trivialities. We're not. It might say that we're worthless, that we're incompetent, that we're hopeless. But we're not. If Christ is our Savior, we are the light of the world. Now again, go back to that idea that he's communicating here. Think about nighttime in the ancient Near East and think about what we are called to do, the incredible brilliance of light we are supposed to be providing in an incredibly dark world. And it's mind-boggling. There are going to be days where we might feel depressed, where we might feel anxious, where we might feel worthless or, or too messed up to be of any use. Or we feel guilty or ashamed, or there's something deeply wrong with us. But those are feelings. What we have here is who we are if we are a believer in Jesus Christ. If we are a follower in Jesus Christ, we are exactly what he said. The light of the world. The light amidst deep darkness. And we're the light of the world because when we embrace him, Jesus lives within each of us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul says. Jesus is the light that came into a very dark world over 2,000 years ago. And, and it's a world that, that wasn't dark just because it lacked electricity. The real darkness was human sin. The real darkness was the great spiritual darkness of the world. It's a darkness that each and every person has participated in because each and every person at some point in their life, usually many points, has chosen to do whatever it is they felt like doing regardless of what God desires them to do, whatever God tells them to do, whatever God says to not do. We have each sinned. That's the path of darkness. Though in today's modern age, we often twist it around and call it enlightenment. We have each chosen to break God's standard of moral and ethical perfection, and whether it's done out of selfishness or, or greed, out of vanity or anger, lust or drunkenness, abusiveness, whatever it is, we all have issues. We have all been filled with darkness. And when we were in the darkness, there was nothing we could do to escape it. We could try really hard, do better the next time, but we would always fail. Because our desire to sin was so powerful on the one hand, and on the other hand, the holy God of the universe will not tolerate the presence of sin. So we were hopelessly separated from God 
when left to our own devices. I believe Philip already referenced 1 John 5 and 6, where the apostle writes, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, God is perfect light. There is not the slightest trace of darkness in him. The word, uh, the phrase in the original Greek is incredibly emphatic here. Not the slightest shred of darkness. There is no hint of sin in God. He is perfect. And therefore, while we still have darkness and the stain of sin in our hearts, we can't ever walk in that light. We have no light to shine. And yet God loved us so much that he didn't leave us doomed to walk in the darkness of our own sin to squat forever in our own squalor, forever separated from our Creator. But the only way to get us out of this, to to deal with sin like ours, is through the sacrifice of blood, a life destroyed to pay the debt for our sins, each of which deserves and requires death. Because sacrificing all the innocent animal of the world would not be enough to clean up our mess. God provided one special sacrifice. The once for all sacrifice. The one man who never sinned. Who is eternal, immortal, present at creation. All things created through him. Fully God and yet fully man. Jesus Christ. Whom John explained was the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, that word propitiation is a mouthful. I always wonder if I'll get through it when I say it out loud. Propitiation describes the sacrifice needed to satisfy the righteous anger of God. Right? It is righteous anger. He is right to be angry about the things we have done. And to pay that off requires a sacrifice. That's what Jesus became when he chose to go to the cross, to take the beating, to take the whipping, to take the humiliation, to have the nails driven through his hands and feet. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took our sin with him. The sacrifice of blood that pays the price of the sin, that was accepted by God, and the acceptance of which was proven by his resurrection from the dead. So now that Christ's work is complete and he is seated in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, God has extended the offer of grace and mercy and complete forgiveness to everyone who comes to him in faith, accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. 1 Peter 2.24 explains, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By the wounds of Jesus Christ, we have been completely healed. We are dead to sin. We are alive to righteousness. And everything that we have ever done, no matter how difficult it is for us to forgive ourselves, or how unlikely we think it is that another person will ever forgive us, all of our shame, all of the things that burden us down, make us feel terrible and inadequate, it is all washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we embrace Jesus, 
When we commit to him, when we decide to follow him, we embrace the light and the life everlasting. And those, those two ideas, light and life, are intimately related as John explains in, in the Gospel of John, first, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thanks to Jesus Christ, we are the light of the world. And the world's darkness cannot overcome it, and it cannot overcome us when we fully embrace what Jesus says and does. Now, Jesus' second truth this morning is that we must shine the light, not hide it. It's good that we are the light of the world, but then there are some responsibilities that come with that. And so first he says a negative responsibility, do not hide it. He gives two analogies to very vividly demonstrate why we can't and shouldn't hide the light of the world. Now the first is of a city on the hill. It's in verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, anyone who was in that original audience at the Sermon on the Mount would have understood this illustration because Jerusalem was a city on a hill. That's why every reference to going to Jerusalem talks about going up to Jerusalem, because it is a city on a hill. Now, as a walled city high above the surrounding territory, there was no way you could hide it, even if you wanted to. By day, it was it was well above the dry and dusty land, and at night, it would have been blazing with torches and fires and surrounded by the incredible pitch black of pre-industrial countryside. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The second analogy is between our light and that provided by a humble household lamp in verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, in New Testament times, the average house was not super big, and so you typically had one lamp that could light up the whole house. But you couldn't be an idiot and put it under the basket. You get no light. Eventually, it's a fire. It's going to be extinguished due to lack of oxygen. Instead, what you would do is you would put it on a stand so that it was elevated above the furniture. Nothing was blocking it. And then it could reach all the corners of the house. Right? You don't cover it light up. You raise light up. And this is our calling as a church, to be the lighthouse, to be the city on the hill, to raise up the light of Christ, to leverage our prominent location at this intersection, to shine Christ's light into every corner of our community. And our calling as Christians individually, we are each to be shining the light, not hiding it. This was a, an order, a command, and it is grammatically a command, and it is a command to all the believers, all the followers of Christ. We are not to hide it. We must be visible. That means we can't just make the church our basket that we come in, shine our light on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and the rest of the time we, we don't shine any light. We have to be out there building relationships, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and, and explaining, as we talked about last week from 1 Peter 3.15, the, the God-given hope and joy that we have and that we carry in our hearts, even in the, the darkest, most difficult seasons of life. Because there is a world out there that needs the good news. 
There are a lot of interesting studies, and very recently a fascinating study talking about categorizing all the cities of America between those that are churched, ever-increasing or ever-decreasing number, those that are de-churched, those that are unchurched, and those that are post-Christian, meaning they've never heard the gospel. That is an increasing category in our country, whole cities. New England leads the way, but the upper North Pacific Northwest is also right out there that have never even heard the gospel. Right? The world is dark out there and is full of people who have ambitions and dreams, who have struggles and disappointments, who have fears and hurts, and they, they're looking for a solution. They don't even necessarily know what it is. They grasp from one system to another, try to rely on one thing after another. Without Jesus Christ, there is no long-term solution to their problems. There are an increasing number of people out there, including in our community, some born in America, some born elsewhere, who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a vast mission field, North American and international, literally waiting in every direction you can cross the street from this building. So we have a responsibility to stop hiding the light and instead shine the light by embodying Christ through our good works. See, verse 16 is really explaining a lot of the how as well as, as the why. Verse 16 says, in the same way, right? So that always means you've got to look at what was in the previous verse. So in the same way that you don't hide a city on a hill because it's impossible, because it's just too big and visible. In the same way, you don't cover up a lamp because that's stupid, and instead you raise it up. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now note here what Jesus says we must be letting other people see. It's not just our words. It's not some proud history or, or, or whatever. It is our good works. That's what people are supposed to see. That's what shines the light in a way that draws the lost. See, we get excited about, let's see our denominational affiliation. Let's see our, our doctrinal truths and statements. Of course, we hold to these things. But for the lost, what draws their attention to God is not what we say, it's what we do. That's what shines the light and will bring a cynical, lost, and jaded world to say, this God is compelling. So we can understand that God who helped and teach them about the God who loves them so much that he sent his only son to die for them. Now let's be clear, when Jesus commands us to shine our light by doing good works, he is not commanding us to do good works to earn God's approval and somehow punch our ticket to heaven. Because that is done for us already through faith in Jesus Christ. Note verse 14. We're already the light of the world before we get started doing anything. That is our status as believers in Jesus Christ. Nothing can make us more worthy of God's approval than Christ's sacrifice. But these good works should be the natural outpouring of this reality, of this incredible exalted status that we have, that we need to appreciate and love in Jesus Christ, that we are the light of the world. That we should be so thankful and excited and joyful about it that we just can't help but constantly share with people we encounter. 
at work, in the neighborhood, in the ball field, and out in the communities, we reach out in Christ's name. We're called to do these works and to be the, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ so the world can see God in action and be drawn to him, to praise him. We need to understand that this is a very powerful form of evangelism because we are in a world that wants to see the gospel before it is willing to hear the gospel. I believe that 21st century America is going to be the era of servant evangelism. That as we are out there working alongside other people, laboring for the kingdom, building relationships with unbelievers who are also trying to do good works in their community, that it is opening the opportunity to share the good news. That as people get used to seeing us, Lake Ridge Baptist Church, embody Christ, that they will open up to letting us explain Christ. It's this approach that undergirds the second and third initiatives under reaching out, which are to fully understand the complexion and needs of our neighborhood and provide targeted outreaches that meet the needs of our neighborhood in a manner that fosters the development of relationships in a loving and Christ-like manner. These initiatives are about being truly the hands and feet of Christ to our community, and that is something we need to recognize is only possible as we really understand the needs and the hurts of the people around us. We, it's not enough to just provide generically helpful stuff. That's not going to get the lost praising God. That's not going to get the lost asking questions about Jesus. Rather, when we get this right as a church, when we are deeply and intimately involved with our neighbors and the, the organizations that serve them, that's our chance to build the kind of relationships where the gospel is shared just as naturally as breathing, where it is received as something worth listening to. That's what it means to embrace and explain and embody Christ at its finest. And if we have embraced Christ, if we have really embraced Christ in our hearts, then, then we should want our neighbors to embrace Him too. Right? And the more we we build up, the more we are in God's Word, the more we are praying and relating to Christ, the more our love for Him will warm and fill our hearts. And then we just can't help but share. And this is important because Jesus is clear, we must not hide our light. And when He talks about shining our light, right, He's not talking about feebly shining some dim little light. We are called to be the light of the world, not the night light of the bathroom. The light of the world is tremendously bright in the midst of a dark world that is increasingly, it seems, dark. This calls for a much deeper commitment to embrace, explain, and embody Jesus than we might be used to. But you know what? If you search Scripture and the topic of following Jesus and being a disciple, while it's quite straightforward to be saved... The call as a disciple is very challenging. Right? We are called to genuine, passionate commitment that is driven by our love of Christ. Not some tepid, half-hearted, lukewarm commitment driven by a sense of guilt or obligation. The kind of passionate commitment that we are called to, that we are saved for, the kind that can truly transform Rockledge and Thousand Oaks, and River Ridge, and Westminster, and Clipper, and Mayflower, 
that can change Lake Ridge in eastern Prince William County and can change the world, right? We love to complain about the world. The solution to the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changed the world 2,000 years ago, and it can change again. So let that be our prayer as we go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible grace and mercy that you have shown us in the midst of our personal rebellion and sin. That despite our antagonism to you, Lord, you reached out through the saving work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That you have made salvation freely available to all who follow him, all who trust in him as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts, each and every one of us here, with a passion and a love for our Savior. That as you fill our hearts, as we embrace Christ truly, that you would fill us with a passion to just talk about him and share him, to embody him to those around us, whether it's at home or in this community or the other side of the world. Lord, that we would glorify you, that we would be transformed and that we would be part of your work and your transformation from here to the ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.